0: Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. I know it has been quite a while since I was on the air last, but I'm glad to be back on. I've had a lot going on lately, but it's all been good. Uh, Just over the weekend, um, my wife and I uh, were at my alma mater, uh, college alma mater, I should say, for uh, homecoming. Hard to believe I've been out of school for 20 years, but it was really great to see uh, classmates of mine that I hadn't seen uh, since... uh, before the time the pandemic began, and there were some classmates I hadn't seen in 10 years. So uh, nonetheless, it was a great time, and it was just uh, great to catch up with people that uh, I don't get to see as often as I would like to. So um, it was uh, really important that I uh, went, and uh, the weather was great, and I'm just glad that I was able to uh, go and make the most of the time uh, spent being with those that I don't get to see as often as I would uh, like to, being uh, close college friends of mine. Well, you know, I do have some uh, good news to report, uh, and that this uh, podcast segment to the Whiskey Rebellion, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and the Frontier Rebels who Challenged America's Newfound Sovereignty by William Hoagland. Uh, We are not only going to be covering part two of... uh, Part two, I should say, of Washington's Journey West, but we are also going to be uh, discussing the epilogue to the Whiskey Rebellion. We are now at the official end of this uh, podcast uh, series. It's been a good one, all right, and I probably would have to say of all the ones, of all the book topics I've done, this was probably the most challenging. But I'm glad I took it on, and I um, do feel as though a lot of you uh, were able to... um, walk away learning a great deal about an event that did take place in America's um, early years as a republic, um, one that did put our nation on um, heightened alert in the form of national security from a domestic perspective, from a domestic front perspective, I should say. But we should also uh, be reminded of the fact that, um, that while yes, uh, the new republic did face challenges in terms of uh, performing, day-to-day operations. There were certainly challenges um, along the frontier that um, that made George Washington realize that, look, you know, if we're going to survive as a republic, there has to be order. Yes, people can disagree about something, but disagreeing doesn't mean taking up arms against the government. There are proper and better alternatives that can be uh, weighed in to um, preventing um, insurrection that can be uh, geared towards preventing um, what we would think of in today's time as an overthrow of a, of a governmental institution. So here we are with our uh, first uh, leadoff question to um, the final podcast segment of the uh, Whiskey Rebellion. Whereas Washington's uh, mission didn't advocate the use of extreme scare tactics, Is it fair to say that Alexander Hamilton manipulated the situation along the western Pennsylvania frontier for personal gains? Remember from uh, the last time I was on the air with you guys, we um, learned a great deal about how uh, Washington, well, for one, we learned that Washington retreated back eastward, and um, Hamilton, along with um, Colonel Henry Knox, as well as, um, or General Henry Knox, but most notably uh, General Henry Lee. They were uh, some of the big gurus in charge, and Hamilton really went all out. And we also learned about how um, one of the generals, being uh, General Anthony White, I want to say it was, and his uh, recklessness for the um, for those men whom were uh, forced out of their homes into the middle of the night, and how um, cruelly they were uh, treated for for um, a period of days—no warmth, no access to food—I mean, to me, that uh, that that definitely um, comes as a violation to some extent of improper treatment. But in terms of uh, maybe some form of cruel and unusual punishment, the way uh, the prisoners uh, were tied up—I mean—and they were not. Um, they were not uh, placed in a uh, proper um, shelter in terms of um, proper flooring. They were sitting side by side, uh, placed uh, back, placed to each other's backs side by side on muddy floors. I mean, to me, that just uh, wasn't the most um, proper of, um, of humane uh, treatment. But nonetheless, wouldn't it be fair to say that Alexander Hamilton um, manipulated the situation for uh, his own personal gains? Uh, The answer to me would definitely be yes. Uh, Hamilton favored such measures as wanting to charge French-inspired politicians, being those of the anti-federalists. You know, when I think of those who are pro-French, I think of Thomas Jefferson, um, think of... uh, Perhaps uh, James Monroe in a way, uh, but most notably Jefferson, because as we know, Jefferson's the leader of the anti-federalist movement and anti-federalists would prefer to have a government that, um, that has more French ideals versus what the federalists uh, want their government operating under, uh, under being that of a British parliamentary system. So, yes, for Alexander Hamilton, he favored such measures as wanting to charge French-inspired politicians, being the anti-federalists, including public officers whom he believed had betrayed America on the grounds of personal ambition. So, in other words, he he feels that there were a lot of um, public officials or just officers who, or just people in general, who, um, whom were only looking after their interests. But isn't it fair to say that Hamilton's only concerned about his interests? I mean, yes, he wants, um, he wants to see the government do well. I think all of our forefathers do, uh, despite their differences in political ideologies. But to me, Hamilton's going a little bit too far. But is it fair to say that Hamilton has higher political ambitions than perhaps being Treasury Secretary? I have a good hunch that he does have higher political ambitions. I guess the bigger question is, is would Hamilton live long enough to be able to foresee any um, greater political ambitions arise? Well, at the start of the 19th century, that all sadly ended. That infamous duel between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton in 1804 if those, if, for those of you who aren't new to my uh, podcasts and are just starting to um, listen to them, uh, one book you should uh, definitely pay uh, careful attention to that I, I did last year, or rather I, I started it at the very end of last year and uh, finished it at the start of this year. It was uh, Jeffers, Adams versus Jefferson, the Tumultuous Election of 1800. You will learn a great deal about Alexander Hamilton's um, meddling, And basically how he ruined uh, John Adams's um, ability to win re-election in 1800. And I should point out that Alexander Hamilton, historians do know that Alexander Hamilton, his biggest undoing was not so much his personal actions, but his personal actions that ultimately, by the start of the 19th century, led to the greater undoing of the Federalist Party. So if you read the book, and listen to it through my podcasts, um, Adams versus Jefferson, The Tumultuous Election of 1800, you will really get a better uh, understanding of of Alexander Hamilton's uh, dark sides when it comes to um, uh, politics and his uh, meddling into other uh, people's um, affairs or matters, most notably within his own party. Now, Washington's orders had gone from uh, civil to military authority, which meant that the greater intent was on getting intelligence or information from a select few whom Washington thought were the real perpetrators behind the greater um, so-called uprising. In other words, Washington wasn't out to get everybody. He's only interested in going after those whom were the lead instigators. However, um, Alexander Hamilton, though once again sees this as being different. Instead of pursuing a select few whom had conspired behind leading the mass number of people off course and taking up arms against the government, Hamilton's mission was to basically eradicate the core, the the bigger core of the people's movement. In other words, to eliminate the heart of it. Because he saw the people's movement along the western frontier is not just being one that was simply dangerous and one that had the ability to potentially undermine the government's authority, but for Alexander Hamilton, he is out to pretty much—he's out to say that everybody along the western Pennsylvania frontier—it doesn't make a difference whether you whether you're in the same boat as the Nevilles. It doesn't make a It doesn't make a difference where you're standing, Is I should say, along the western Pennsylvania frontier. You're guilty. Hamilton's not interested in prosecuting individuals. He sees that as the easy way out. To me, I would rather be more concerned about prosecuting individuals because it would take an eternity to question everybody along the frontier. But You know, for Alexander Hamilton, you know, he's like George Washington. Yes, he believes in order. However, Hamilton is going a little bit far to the extreme with the order. In other words, he's wanting to blame everybody. But the blame, to me, should only be on those whom really were responsible for promoting the masses, the greater masses of the Western Pennsylvania Frontier Society and taking up arms with the select few whom conspired to... um, to lead this um, matter into an actual event. William Finley, who was the congressman from western Pennsylvania, he uh, firmly believed that the poor and the landless were the true insurgents or the instigators behind the Whiskey Rebellion uprising. Well, uh, Congressman Finley does have a good point. I mean, those whom are landless, whom are poor, and if they don't have a whole lot to... um, to live off of, then it would be very easy to assume that those um, individuals, being the poor and the landless, would have greater means to take up arms with regards to showing their displeasure. However, it should be uh, pointed out that that rebellions don't always uh, concentrate on placing um, opposition into the hands of the landless and the poor. Uh, For those of you who were with me when we talked about... um, Daniel Shays's Rebellion, uh, the American Revolution's final battle, we did come to a uh, shocking realization that though, that there were plenty of um, men who participated in Shays' Rebellion who actually came from um, middle-class families, and in other instances, upper-middle-class families. There were those who were retired officers in the American Revolutionary War, just like Mr. Daniel Shays himself. So uprisings are not always placed into the hands of the landless and the poor, but is it fair to say that William Finley is is blaming the landless and the poor with the hopes that those um, who are above, say that of middle class status, could perhaps get a break? In other words, they might have to face some kind of um, some kind of a legal charge. But perhaps there's, but perhaps the charge could be reduced if they, you know, um, are willing to comply with um, law enforcement as well as with judges. So, in other words, for Congressman Finley, he doesn't believe in uh, pointing and pointing fingers at everybody, but he does believe that if there are, certain, if there is a certain group or two that's responsible for um, for partaking in the uh, greater uprising, then the um, then the focus needs to be on those um, groups, not not the greater whole. Hamilton's biggest enemies along the western Pennsylvania frontier should not come as a a surprise, being that of William Finley, including another fellow um, whom we did not talk about, but he was mentioned towards the very end of this um, book itself, was uh, Albert Gallatin and Albert Gallatin would go on to one day become Thomas Jefferson's uh, Secretary of uh, the Treasury. Both men uh, were really considered to be public enemies number one uh, to Alexander Hamilton, largely because they opposed the whiskey tax, and they also just didn't like the fact that Alexander Hamilton was present in Washington's administration. They knew that uh, Hamilton uh, was a control freak. They knew that Hamilton liked being at the top of everything. They knew that if something didn't go Hamilton's way, he would uh, vent over it, even if it meant causing uh, a stir from uh, within his own party. They just knew that Hamilton always had to be at the forefront of everything. You know, it's one thing to be in power, but I tell you, those who are in power sometimes don't even recognize their own limits. And when they don't recognize their own limits it is fair to say that they do become liabilities and burdens to the to the dearest of um, colleagues or friends from within to where history has shown and in some instances where where members of a party no matter how close or tight they are some members are willing to break ranks with one or two individuals whom whom just make life no longer worth, um, not so much make life worth living, but make life or matters just all the more unbearable. And that's when you have factions, and that's when you have greater unrest, and that's what can lead to, um, can lead to something inevitable. And in this case, like what ha- would eventually happened to Alexander Hamilton in 1804 was a duel. And sadly, dueling at one time was a way to resolve political conflicts from within um, per families uh, related to one another or just amongst uh, politicians who uh, couldn't stand each other's throats. And it wasn't always confined to the same party. It was also to opposing parties. So for Alexander Hamilton, um, he didn't like the fact that um, Congressman Finley and Albert Gallatin both attended the second Pittsburgh convention where... um, They signed uh, the petition in opposing the whiskey tax, and as I said earlier, Hamilton is a man obsessed with power from all facets, which led him, yes, to become a control freak, along with being someone whom had potential to cause rifts amongst the political party of his own uh, personal affiliation, the Federalists. Did members of the Neville Connection point their fingers at Hugh Henry Brackenridge? Yes, they did. They had advised um, Alexander Hamilton of Mr. Brackenridge's playing a double game the entire time, along with accusing him of, of being a head rebel. What about this double game? Well, Mr. Brackenridge. He's trying to be neutral. In other words, he doesn't want to remain one hundred percent on one person's side. He did empathize with the rebels about how they, about they're proclaiming that they were being unjustly taxed without their consent. He did empathize with them, but at the same time did Mr. Brackenridge advocate them to take up arms? Not just take up arms, but did Mr. Brackenridge advocate the use of tarring and feathering of uh, customs uh, agents or what we call the uh, federal federal tax collectors? No, he didn't authorize that. He didn't support that kind of extremism but yet he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Neville's argued that uh, Brackenridge opposed calling out the militia and protecting Bower Hill, the Neville estate, which, you know, did get burned to the ground. Uh, so they have that uh, charge against uh, Brackenridge. They also accused Brackenridge of holding the meeting at, at the Mingo Creek Church, where David Bradford called upon all Western Pennsylvania Frontiers people To overthrow the American government. These sound like some pretty uh, stiff uh, charges or allegations. And and, uh, for the Neville uh, connection, or let alone for the Neville family in 1792, they also um, remembered and also kept a uh, a copy of that uh, article uh, that Mr. Brackenridge wrote in the National Gazette advocating the repeal of the whiskey tax. I think that would uh, upset the Neville's because you know, for one, the Nevilles are a prominent family, and two, they are deeply connected with the government. Uh, Mr. Nevel uh, himself was um, held the, the, the distinguished title of being the head uh, survey of the 4th uh, District. So he had people working below him who were trying to get uh, the taxes uh, collected, but yet were met with fierce resistance. So, yes, uh, having Mr. Brackenridge um, writing an article about repealing the whiskey tax... That just doesn't um, make things uh, welcoming, to say the least. Hamilton truly saw Mr. Brackenridge as the perfect individual that George Washington himself might seek out in being a suspect on the wanted list. Anybody whom is deemed um, a threat to Alexander Hamilton, it sounds like, needs to be met... they not they not only need to be caught but they need to be uh tried as quickly as possible because the longer their situation holds out in a court of law for Alexander Hamilton, he knows the greater the likelihood that others will carry out acts rebellious acts that either bear similarity to um to what one person advocates or actions that become far more severe than what was originally proposed. Mr. Brackenridge uh, received stories daily of what the Nevilles and let alone the Neville connection were saying. News spread where troops planned on executing him. Brackenridge went before the troops by publishing notices explaining his personal conduct. However, even with assistance from William Finley and David Reddick, it's it still wasn't enough for troops to change their minds. At this point now, Hugh Henry Brackenridge is a wanted man and is vulnerable to death by execution or assassination. It's a shame that you know some people, you know, if you know they're guilty or if you don't like them, you know, there are other means of wanting there are other means of trying to resolve a matter without having to go towards you know assassination but that doesn't always uh, bode in some people's minds and even in the course of history it is fair to say that we have uh, history has taught us that there have been some tragic circumstances where where a leader may have sought peace over war and he or she uh, sadly paid the price because of their decision because there were those below them or from within the inner circle who didn't like what their uh, fellow leader stood for and not to get off track or anything but the one that often comes to my mind of course i wasn't alive when it happened but for my parents it was their nine eleven, was when president kennedy was assassinated president kennedy didn't want to go to war in vietnam and he uh, also um, Hard to believe it was 60 years ago this month, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, 13 days. 13 days of not knowing whether or not um, the world would, would still remain intact or, the, or if the world would end by means of uh, nuclear warfare. President Kennedy, Nikita Khrushchev, Fidel Castro, they all did come together. They put aside their political differences and uh, worked out uh, compromises. The Russians agreed to withdraw missiles from Havana, Cuba. And the Americans agreed to withdraw missiles from Turkey. They worked it out and World War III was averted but sadly it was not enough for some people within the government who wanted Kennedy out and sadly on November 22nd of 1963 the inevitable did happen. And as my father said, yes it was his 9-11 but it was also a loss of innocence. How could something like this have happened? tragically it did so even in the even in america's early years as a young republic there was a lot of tension there was a lot of hostilities and of course you know when you have hostilities for george washington it's just not acceptable hostilities not just on the legislative floor but from within your own cabinet how can government function even when you have party heads of a department at one another's throats. It happened. And I will say that um, that although what happened along the Pennsylvania frontier, it was a matter of national security, there is good news to report, and that based upon what we've already talked about and, wo- and where we're going, we are going to avoid a war where mass lives are, be, are going to be lost we are going to be able to avoid that so it is a blessing a huge blessing so so basically uh, for uh, mr brackenridge he's now got to um, come up with another uh, means of uh, defense mr brackenridge was residing in pittsburgh at the same time upon the neville family's return as they were previously exiled and shortly after the Neville's reemergence. a group of soldiers came to Brackenridge's home with the intent on executing him. But Mr. Neville decided instead to have Brackenridge be tried in a courtroom versus assassination. Okay, see this is where we're using some good common sense here now. Mr. Neville may uh, still have his hostilities towards Brackenridge at the moment, but he's taking a better approach. Try him in a court of law, because assassinating him won't resolve the problem, because if Mr. Breckenridge gets assassinated, it's going to fuel the fire even more so with all those rebels living nearby whom will not only take up arms, but they could also go after me, they could go after my family, they could go after other tax collectors. We're going to be back at square one, basically. So the interrogators ended up releasing uh, suspects, including some who were guilty, only to have them um, agree to provide evidence against Brackenridge, including William Finley and Albert Gallatin. That's a double-edged sword, right there. Your double-edged sword, right there. You're releasing prisoners, but on the grounds that by releasing them, that they testify against other people, basically to have their own names exonerated. Tough times. So Hugh Henry Brackenridge is arrested. And he is forced to give up his home to General Henry Lee, whom went about making his headquarters in the home of Mr. Brackenridge. And if that's awkward enough, what I found even more awkward was that Mr. Brackenridge and Henry Lee were both former Princeton classmates. It sounds like one friend is turning their back on another. And given Mr. Brackenridge was a moderate, made his presence all the more questionable, given moderates were often viewed as being neutral and the midst of the current conflict along the Pennsylvania frontier didn't help him. I'm beginning to wonder, um, who's going to really, is there anybody else besides William Finley and um, and perhaps Al, Albert Gallatin or Henry Reddick that can uh, stand up to... Um, these to, and uh, come to Hugh Henry Brackenridge's defense and really stick it to Alexander Hamilton and say, hey, look, you don't really know who this guy is, but it's not so much that you don't really know who this guy is, but maybe you don't have all your facts 100% straight like you've been claiming you have. So whom fiercely stood up to Neville's charges against Hugh Henry Brackenridge? Senator James Ross, whom was a close friend to President Washington and he went before Alexander Hamilton, pleading for Brackenridge's reputation and life. The letter that the Nevilles had did contain sensitive information against Mr. Brackenridge, in the form of conspiratorial content. Conspiracy, folks, that's where it involves two or more people in gate, whom are willing to commit an act, an unlawful act, towards um, a leader towards a governing institution, Um, but basically conspiracy, remember folks, it's Latin for conspirari. Conspiracy involves two or more people willing to uh, take on, or whom are willing to commit an act, an act that has um, bad uh, consequences in terms of 101 interpretation. So, yes, there is a letter that the Nevilles have that contains uh, sensitive information against Mr. Brackenridge in the form of conspiratorial content. It also includes David Bradford's name. The information in the the letter stated that Brackenridge and um, Bradford each shared a commitment to carry out an uprising. James Ross was fortunate enough to have read the letter but he couldn't make out Brackenridge's handwriting. How so? Well, James Ross knows uh, Mr. Brackenridge so well that he also knows that he also knows just how um, difficult Brackenridge's handwriting is. In other words, his handwriting's not consistent. It turns out, folks, that the letter in the end was addressed to William Bradford, the U.S. Attorney General. It was never addressed to Hugh Henry Brackenridge. Is it fair to say now that all parties involved are in a state of disbelief? Yes, if I was alive at that time in the situation, I would be in a state of disbelief. But the Neville's, along with John Woods, their personal counselor, brought Alexander Hamilton information that had potential they had pretty much brought Alexander Hamilton information that had potential to ruin the current mission in operation that is the mission along the frontier to to quash this rebellion once and for all. Is it fair to say that the Nevilles did not get their facts straight? They may have gotten something straight, but did the Nevilles rush rush to judgment? Yes. Is it fair to say by now that had James Ross not come to uh, Hugh Henry Brackenridge's defense that um, Brackenridge would have been found guilty in a court of law? Perhaps so. So we haven't gotten to the courtroom uh, yet, but I'm beginning to also think that there might be a possibility, a possibility that there might not need to be a trial after all. But um, we'll just have to uh, keep our eyes and uh, monitor things very carefully as we proceed forward. Hamilton did meet one-on-one with Mr. Brackenridge after the letter mishap incident occurred, okay? All right, Hamilton's going in the right direction here now. He's meeting one-on-one, and I think it might be fair to say that he could be, that the conversation's going to be more than just, oh, I'm sorry that, you know, this happened. Um, No, it's going to be other things. Uh, Hamilton's stance did change from originally supporting Brackenridge's possible uh, sentence of death by hanging to potentially sparing the man's life. Gosh, to think Alexander Hamilton, he I may—he mean, really wanted this guy dead. But now, uh, even Hamilton is having to be a little bit flexible and realizing that, well, hanging isn't going to probably solve the problem. Remember um, one of our uh, amendments uh, from the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution? There is an amendment, and that amendment uh, basically says that you have the right to a fair and speedy trial. In other words, isn't everybody, shouldn't everybody be entitled to have the right to a fair trial? Who do we have to thank for that? John Adams. And it is fair to say that the right to a fair trial got started Back in 1770, the same year that the infamous Boston Massacre occurred, John Adams represented the accused soldiers that fired into the crowd. He wasn't doing it for 15 minutes of fame. He just firmly believed that even the accused, no matter how much you hate the accused, even the accused have a right to, have, to be properly represented. They also have the right to a fair and speedy trial. So, yes, uh, we should be reminded that even in 1794 that some of our leaders are forgetting that there are those whom they may not like that are engaging in conduct against the government, but even if they are arrested, they still need to be given a fair trial, and then once the trial is done, then it's up to the jury to decide that person's fate. So, Where are we going to go from here now, now that Hamilton's uh, mind is beginning to gradually uh, change, or maybe his emotions are thawing? Well, he writes down Brackenridge's version of events that included uh, what William Bradford engaged in. The more information that Brackenridge gave, the greater the likelihood that Hamilton would offer up something to prevent the arrest of Mr. Brackenridge from happening. The end result did see Hamilton being more relaxed, which included his reaching a decision in favor of having Mr. Brackenridge exonerated. Exonerated. He's cleared. Cleared of all charges brought before him. Boy, this is a huge relief for Hugh Henry Brackenridge. It's also a huge uh, relief for um, Senator um, Ross. Uh, What's significant about Christmas morning September? Of uh, 1794, well, for starters, nearly 20,000 Philadelphians saw an entourage of defeated whiskey rebels brought into America's capital capital city from the western frontier, uh, the forks of the Ohio. Wow, it sounds like there are a lot of um, prisoners coming. Believe it or not, folks, less than 50 were brought into Philadelphia. Only 20. Twenty prisoners brought into uh, Philadelphia, led by that uh, general named Anthony White, A.K.A. Anthony uh, Blackbeard White, whom had, um, in my opinion, whom had inhumanly treated the prisoners under his uh, under his uh, watch, whom were um, not given proper uh, shelter or um, clothing or even food for a few days. So yes, he's the one that's um, that has the task of um, of uh leading the prisoners um, down the streets in in the heart of Philadelphia each prisoner was escorted between pairs of mounted soldiers whose swords remained in drawn status what's drawn status meaning that if the swords are still are are out they're out visible these sold these mounted soldiers have reasons to believe that um those that there are those in the crowd who could who could make their way in front of the um, mounted soldiers' path and block all means of preventing the the prisoners from going um, into the jailhouse facility? So the the drawn um, the swords and drawn status is a means of uh, warding off all rescue attempts from bystanders watching nearby. Prisoners. Um, were given white slips of paper and were ordered to put them on their hats as ribbons representing something like organization. The small number of rebels or prisoners must be identified by large crowds in attendance. Philadelphia was celebrating day in and day out with each army unit's return from the western frontier. Soldiers were placed Soldiers placed prisoners in the normal marching order and oversaw them move through the multiple streets with crowds chanting and shouting. For the rebels, uh, the people of Philadelphia really viewed the rebels as foreign. In other words, they had never really seen a lot of people that were of their type. They just... Think about it, you know, Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, even in today's time, you know, they're about five, six hours apart from each other. You know, Philadelphia borders New Jersey, Delaware, Pittsburgh borders Pennsylvania, borders Ohio, West Virginia. I mean, two, two separate worlds. So for Philadelphia, I mean, you're seeing the rich, the elite, the upper middle class, Pittsburgh, you might be seeing, at best, the typical middle class with the classes that fall, that fall below. And if you do have some wealthy people in Pittsburgh, like the Nevels, along with um, some of their other, along with other families in the elite uh, Neville uh, connection, um, they make up that small minority. So, the prisoners are being sent into the uh, Philadelphia City Jail, where other rebels, including Herman Husband, awaited the arrival of new outlaws, whom weren't allowed necessities from food to no light. So, here we go again, folks. Another round of what some people would say now as uh, perhaps cruel and unusual punishment. Were charges uh, revealed to prisoners ahead of time prior to the hearings uh, taking place? No. Uh, the judges made it clear in ordering juries to return charges as well as indictments and guilty verdicts against all 20 prisoners, even if the evidence was deemed inconclusive by law enforcement. That's That, to me, is not fair there, because if you know—I hate to say this—throughout history, and we've learned about it in recent years where police and law enforcement— and I'm not trying to sound political but it has happened where evidence has been tampered with evidence has been um, fabricated um, evidence that was brought before an actual uh, jury seemed uh, plausible and that it, and it seemed um, conclusive it turned out to be the opposite and people you know were sent um, away for for X number of years, knowing that all this time they were in fact innocent, when, when a jury and a prosecution and, um, and a de- uh, law enforcement department um, said otherwise. So, not trying to sound political, but even in the 18th century, it is fair to say that there are plenty of that there have been plenty of situations where there have been um, some form of a rush to judgment. The common procedure, or let alone method, was for high-ranking suspects to receive deals in testifying against lower-tier followers, but for men like Alexander Hamilton, the focus centered upon entire people within the greater forks of the Ohio versus prosecuting individuals. It's almost as if Alexander Hamilton has it out for everybody along the forks of the Ohio. He just doesn't really seem to have a very good favor of these people. He thinks that all of these people are a bunch of renegade outlaws who have no respect for the law. But as we learned a while back, there were those along the frontier who were law-abiding citizens, who were willing to pay the uh, tax on whiskey, and yet their lives were put in danger by those from within whom uh, saw them as traitors. But did Alexander Hamilton choose to uh, learn about that? No. And for Alexander Hamilton, it's all about Mr. Hamilton himself. Now, it does turn out that only 12 cases went to trial. And two rebels were convicted, being Philip Weigel and John Mitchell. So, who exactly is Philip Weigel? Well, other than the fact that he uh, lived along the frontier, well, He did go about assaulting Benjamin Wells, who was a tax collector. However, at the same time, he was part of a larger uh, group of men whom went about burning Benjamin Wells' home. John Mitchell was a participant in the burning of Wells' home. He was of a lower-tier status amongst the greater group. He uh, did come from a landless family whose politics were the opposite of all things Federalist. Well, it, it might be fair to say that all landless families along the frontier would not have been for the Federalists because, remember, the Federalists catered to the to the few, the elite. And in Alexander Hamilton's eyes, only the wealthy and the well-educated should be um, should be the ones um, in the government. Why should anybody along the frontier in Alexander Hamilton's eyes have a say in our government? That's that's just the way Alexander Hamilton operated. President Washington, though, did go about pardoning all the others. By the time President Washington issues the pardons, prisoners lagged. They lagged uh, big time to where some stayed in private homes while out on bail, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but others could not post bail. (laughs) Remember, folks, you know, we don't have telephones. Uh, we can't call up a loved one and say, hey, I need, um, I need you to go to the bank and get $5,000 so I can be out on bail. If you couldn't come up with the money, you stayed behind bars. And I think many of you would be surprised to know that there were some of our forefathers who signed not only the Declaration of Independence, but those who signed the Constitution, whom uh, died in debtors' prisons, James Wilson, believe it or not folks, who, um, who we learned uh, from the previous pod, from previous uh, podcast or two, James Wilson was the man who, uh, who went on to become a justice of the Pennsylvania Supreme, uh, of the United States Supreme Court. He signed the certificate giving Washington the authority to send troops into uh, western Pennsylvania. But James Wilson folks, yes, I mean, he was a very brilliant man, but he died in debt. He uh, he died in debtor's prison. He was simply unable to pay his debts from all the land speculation deals he had uh, partaken in. And sadly, that's how some of our forefathers died. They, they died not so much by means of bad financial um, circumstances, but it was because of, of uh, schemes that they had partaken in where they were never able to get out of debt. and And for those whom were in debt they stayed in jail until the debts were paid off, and if it meant uh, if it meant family members selling off property to eliminate the debts, then perhaps there was a greater likelihood that perhaps with time, that the um, that the person in jail who was in debt could be released. So. Uh, so, yes, it, just because you are in jail, we should just keep in mind that in the 18th century, not everyone was fortunate to have access to uh, be able to post bail. So those, those who couldn't post bail remained behind bars. And trials, folks, uh, for those who were uh, brought to Philadelphia, trials didn't first begin until May of 1795. So that's basically uh, about five months after um, these prisoners were first brought in um, when uh, the city of Philadelphia began celebrating left and right by Christmas of 1794. And come 1796, those tried and pardoned were allowed to return home to the Forks of the Ohio. And I think it's fair to say that those whom were tried and pardoned also had to sign a loyalty agreement that they would not take up arms against the United States. The for, there was a force of fifteen hundred federal r- troops that remained stationed in the town of Washington, Pennsylvania. That is, uh, Henry Lee issued a general pardon, loyalty oaths. So yes, he issued a general pardon as well as loyalty oaths, as well as um, overseeing that uh, whiskey, overseeing um, that whiskey stills get registered. The Neville Connection went about resuming its business objectives along with General Neville resuming his duties and enforcing the whiskey tax with the help from the Wells family. However, no matter how hard General Neville tried along with those from within the greater uh, Neville Connection in enforcing the whiskey tax, it still remained hard to collect given that um, authority authority onto itself eluded everything else. In other words, people still had a way. Those rebels still found ways to elude the the authorities, but did so without means of violence now. How did they um, elude authority? Well, they smuggled whiskey. They, and instead of perhaps making the whiskey, they made moonshine instead. So, no matter how hard the, co- the tax collectors tried to get the money. They may have gotten money from some of the um, people along the frontiers, but they weren't able to get it from everybody. But whatever money they did get, it must have been enough to have helped uh, finance um, the existing war debts, uh, domestic and abroad, that America was needing to uh, pay off from uh, the American Revolutionary War. When en route to uh, Carlisle, Pennsylvania during the fall of 1794, what bit of good news did President Washington receive? And you know, for all that Washington's been dealing with by late 1794, he really could deserve a nice piece of good news. Well, he got confirmation from government officials advising that General Anthony Wayne's forces defeated a handful of Indian tribes along the Ohio Territory, most notably at Fallen Timbers, uh, located near present-day Toledo, Ohio, which is in the northwest part of the state. This victory uh, was a true um, test of redemption, given what happened uh, three years earlier in 1791, when um, General Arthur St. Clair and his uh, forces were routed by a handful of um, Indian tribes along the Ohio Territory, which uh, prevented um, the fall of the... um, which prevented the fall of the Indian uh, stronghold in um, Ohio. But now, three years later, General Anthony Wayne and his uh, troops emerged victorious to where this victory onto itself was not only so much monumental, but it helped open the West, a.k.a. Northwest Territory, in allowing settlers from the East to establish uh, new settlements in what we now know as present-day Ohio, onward into Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. It didn't happen all at once in all five of those states, but it did start with Ohio as being the state that um, helped pave the way for what we now know as uh, westward expansion as part of the Northwest uh, Territory. General Wayne's victory at fallen timbers also helped enhance George Washington's western lands to where they increased in value by fifty percent, you know, prior to um, prior to uh, General Anthony Wayne's victory at Fallen Timbers, and prior to the American, prior to the government prevailing along the frontiers of uh, Western Pennsylvania, Washington's land values were in disarray, and and it didn't help that he ha- didn't have the best of um, agents who um, were not. Um, Big on um, making overseeing his lands, but thank heavens with General Wayne's victory at Fallen Timbers that now the land values are going to increase, and that's all. And, and a big factor to that will now be that uh, people, um, um, settlers, can now start coming westward, and because they could start coming westward, Washington's land will see greater value. Whatever um, happened in the end to Edmund Randolph? You know, he was uh, George Washington's attorney general. You know, he was cousins with uh, Thomas Jefferson, or relative. You know, his uncle was uh, the famous uh, Peyton Randolph. But was Edmund Randolph President Washington's last surviving member of the first-term cabinet? Yes. However, Edmund Randolph um, didn't have a very good uh, farewell ending in terms of his time being under uh, Washington's cabinet. As Attorney General, he made a grave mistake by having sent a dispatch or a letter to French authorities explaining, along with criticizing, the United States government's actions and how it was um, handling the Whiskey Rebellion. Randolph also included in his letter improper political innuendos, or I should say accusations, regarding... President Washington, Alexander Hamilton, and other top federalists. Boy, you know, there's that saying, don't say everything that's on your mind. Well, it certainly was around. It's fair to say that it was around when our forefathers were alive. Even our forefathers were guilty of saying things that they should not have been saying. The only one that maybe in my eyes really could have stood above everyone else was George Washington. I don't know why I say that, but I just do. But uh, Edmund Randolph, um, he really shot himself in the foot. Yes, he was not um, big on wanting to send troops into the frontier to quash this rebellion. But the fact that he went behind Washington's back and wrote a letter to French authorities about all that's going on, to me, this sounds treasonous. And there were those in uh, the government who wanted Edmund Randolph tried for treason, well, Randolph did resign, but uh, it was, but this was something that Washington never forgave him for, and rightfully so. You don't turn your back on the general. I mean, yes, he's the commander-in-chief, but at the same time, if you say something awkward or inappropriate about George Washington from within the inner circle, um, you're pretty much on your own to defend yourself. Good luck with uh, George Washington wanting to come to your defense. Despite Alexander uh, Hamilton clearing Hugh Henry Brackenridge of all wrongdoing, did Brackenridge himself get exonerated by the United States Army? Well, it didn't happen right away, but over a course of a short time period, General Neville sought out Mr. Brackenridge by having him come on as a means of extra help in prosecuting those distillers whom failed to properly register their stills. And by the end of the 1790s, Mr. Brackenridge... um, had become an ardent supporter of Jeffersonian Republicans. He served as a justice to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. In 1815, he authored Modern Chivalry, the first major fictional work piece describing the American frontier. He would die a year later in 1816. He was almost 70 years old, uh, from what I had read, so to have lived to have been close to 70 years old back then, that was considered old age. Was Herman Husband indicted, and if so, on what charge? Well, believe it or not, he got charged with sedition, and sedition refers to conduct or incitement of speech promoting uh, rebellious activities. But there is a bit of good news for Herman Husband. Although he was charged with, with sedition, however, nobody came forward during the time that the negotiations at Parkinson's Ferry were taking place, nobody came forward and actually admitted that husband himself advocated violence. But instead, he was um, advocating peace. So the jury was smart enough to reverse course by ruling husband as not guilty. He was released from prison on May 12th of 1795, but sadly died a month later on June 19th. And believe it or not, folks, what do you know? To this day, Herman Husband's grave site has not been found. Maybe Herman Husband didn't want to be buried with a lot of pomp. And perhaps by not being buried with a lot of pomp and having his grave uh, site unmarked, perhaps it would serve as a reminder that he did not want others taking up arms and rushing to judgment all because of what one person said at one particular time. Yes, Herman Husband didn't like what perhaps the government was doing, but at the same time he himself was caught between a rock and a hard place. And thank heavens that the uh, jury did overturn his conviction because Herman Husband did pass away with his family and Many of his family whom were with him when he passed had not seen him in about 15 years. They saw him last when he was eluding um, authorities. So for Herman husband, is it fair to say that he, um, that he died in better terms? I could say that, it, that he did die on better terms. But the fact that his gravesite is unmarked Is his way of of saying that I you know want to rest in peace. I don't want people. um, I don't want other martyrs out there taking up what I may have stood for at one time. I don't want others out there taking up arms for all the wrong reasons, just because I may have said something at one time that may have caused um, those to become inspired by wanting to do something that I knew in the end simply was not the right way of resolving a problem. Well, the good news is that, in the end, our government in 1794 is still there. There will be other challenges in America's young republic that she will face. But George Washington did avert a crisis. He averted a crisis that um, allowed him to uh, finish out the remaining three years of his uh, presidency, or rather I should say maybe the remaining two and a half years of his presidency, On uh, the best uh, solid ground there was. And of course, one thing we do have to be reminded that Washington uh, did state in his farewell address was the dangers of political parties. He even saw these dangers before his presidency ended, but yet he knew that if political parties weren't checked, they would become the greatest undoings to the young Republic, not just in the present but perhaps for the future. I wonder what he would think Of America's political parties in today's time. He would see factions, he would see partisanship at its worst, he probably would be saying the same thing that he said in 1797. For what we do know is that Washington did avert a crisis, he finished out his presidency, and when he dies in 1799, America is saddened. As uh, Robert E. Lee's father, Light Horse Harry Lee said, first in the hearts of his fellow countrymen, first in the hearts of his fellow Americans, first in the hearts of America. Well, we've covered a a great story, and I hope all of you uh, have come away learning more about um, a topic that you may have learned about through textbooks years ago, but now you can say that you learned more in your lifetime about it than uh, previously before. I don't know when I'll be on the air again next, but I do look forward to being on the air when I'm with you guys again next time. And when I'm on the air, we will be discussing a new uh, book topic uh, podcast series. Thank you for your time, as always. You guys are great. Without you all, I'm not sure where I would be, but uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Take care for now and stay safe.